Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be here, unexpectedly a little bit, but um, wonderful to uh, be sharing the word with you this morning. Now, the passage that I'm not going through Hebrews today, but I will touch on it. Please open your Bible to Luke chapter 16. So it's Luke chapter 16. Okay, I'll read. I should have asked what version you use. If it's different to what you have, I'm reading from ESV. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. Let me begin with a question for you to think about, and I'll give you a minute or two to talk to your neighbor. The question is this, do you need to believe the Bible in order to be saved? I'll give you a minute. Right? Do you need to believe the Bible in order to be saved? Well, um, I know that you probably haven't finished the conversation, but uh, 
please continue after the service. And yeah, hopefully um, what, what I share with you this morning uh, will give you some things to think about. How about I pray before I preach? Heavenly Father, help us this morning to not simply hear, but to receive uh, with all of our being what you have given in your word. Father, we pray that we would not simply uh, agree, but that we would joyfully think about how to respond and that we would be reminded how wonderful it is that you have revealed yourself in Scripture. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four sections um, just to help you follow along. And the first section is the longest. So after I finish the first section, don't get worried because you'll be thinking, oh my gosh, he's still got three more to go. <laughs> so there are, there are four sections. The first section is a strange parable. And I just want to take you through the parable in that section. The second section is called, why speak like this? The third section is called, in one ear and out the other. And the fourth section is called Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword. So let's go to the first section. Um, it's a strange parable because most, just about every other parable, you don't see people in the parable being named. And so what's unusual is here, one of the characters has a name, Lazarus. And some people, some um, ancient uh, commentators and theologians have even thought this isn't a parable. This is actually a true story. However, as we read this, uh, we, we see elements where there is, there is very much, uh, it's, it's in line with how Jesus tells his stories, right? Often he ends a story with so many unfinished questions. You know, it leaves the audience thinking, wait, is that the end? I need some closure here. There's something that we want to follow through with the story, as in many of the parables. In many of the parables, uh, Jesus uses rich uh, pictures and metaphors. And here, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rich picture. At the same time, there's something about the description that makes us think this is not simply metaphoric, but it's, it's a realistic description. Now, having said that, because it is a parable, we cannot develop simply on this text an understanding of everything to do with heaven and hell because there's lots of content in Scripture as well. But let's start. There was a rich man. Okay, you guys probably know someone who's rich. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So there's something about comfort and extravagance and great wealth, but it's also something where that wealth is on display. Purple, no one's wearing purple. Purple 
is, it means something different today, but purple was a symbol of, of wealth. It was hard to get that dye. They had to go to the ocean and find these mussels and crush them, and, and it was very expensive. So purple always means wealth in, in Scripture. It's, 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 a, it's a dye that was extremely difficult to make. It's clothed in the, you know, what, whatever brand you think is the up here, clothed in that brand, fine linen, most, comf- you know, we take it for granted that our clothes are soft, but people wore often clothes that, that weren't that, you know, easy uh, to wear. And he's just wearing fine linen and he's feasting sumptuously every day. So some of us, we, you know, occasionally we get to go to the, those really, you know, expensive places and you take photos and make everyone jealous. And this guy's doing that every day, okay? He's doing that every day. Here, though, there's something about this. Is this a sign of blessing from God? Because wealth was understood by many people in Israel as I'm, I'm under God's blessing. It was kind of like a strange Jewish version of maybe even karma that they had deserved this wealth, that they had somehow, um, you know, been in good keeping with God. So that's the first character. He's not named. That's normal. But we have a second character, and we hear his name. His name is Lazarus. And that's not the Lazarus in John chapter 11 that is are raised from the dead. That Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. That's a definitely real person. This Lazarus is a different Lazarus. It's a, probably a fictional character that Jesus names him because everyone in the kingdom is known by name. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So this guy can't even really move himself. Someone some people have basically brought him and thought, we'll put him in front of this mansion so hopefully he'll get some mercy, he'll get some pity. They laid him there and he's covered in sores. So he's poor and he's got some severe medical or skin problems. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Have you ever eaten out of a bin? Hopefully not. But if you're going to eat out of a bin, you want to reach, you want to get into that rich man's bin, right? You're going to find the, the fine things, the fine leftovers. He's longing for the leftovers from the rich man's table. This man who feasts sumptuously every day. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And it's not like your cute puppy dog giving you a lick on the face. These are filthy animals. These are animals that are regarded as unclean. And one of the insults in Judaism is to call someone your dog, kind of like today. The dogs come and lick his sores. It's, it's just so pitiful, isn't it? Now, you can imagine 
This unnamed rich man sees him quite regularly. But from the nuance of the story, there's no pity, there's no mercy, there's no compassion, there's probably indifference and annoyance. He'd probably prefer him out of the way. Now, before we judge him, I'm guilty of this. Let me ask you too. Have you ever thought, I wish that beggar wasn't there? I wish that poor person. You know, because sometimes we see people begging and it's like they've made it their spot. You know, and sometimes they camp there. Sometimes you see them. And, and you know, if you have a regular route that you take, there are certain people you see all the time in destitute situations. It's an annoyance. It's ruining his view. He's there having his morning meal and, oh, Lazarus, get out of my view. So this is a situation, and then we go to the next part where both die. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There's a big irony here because if a poor man dies, there's no funeral, there's no mourning, there's no extravagant burial. You basically, people pick him up and toss him to the garbage heap. Get him out. That may have been the physical experience and at the same time, he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There's, a, there's another reality to this poor man's afterlife experience. The rich man also died. And you can see here, he was buried. He had the kind of funeral that we're used to. But look at verse 23. And in Hades, place of the dead, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. They're both Jewish men. They both know the law. They both understand Abraham being the father of their faith. And he calls out to Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's, it's just too much for him. It's so hot. It's so dry. It's so tormenting. And he says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Have you ever been so thirsty that you just wanted that little bit of water just to give you a little bit of reprieve? This is the kind of situation he's in. And we see Abraham, he responds like this child. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And we already know this. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, if we only have verse 25, then it will be right for us to conclude that receiving good things in this life means anguish later and bad things in this life means comfort later. That might be a conclusion we might reach if only verse 25 is all we have to go off in terms of how we understand the afterlife and its connection to how we live today. But that's not the point, and this is simply not enough for us to arrive at that conclusion. Abraham himself 
died tremendously wealthy. Remember that. He was tremendously wealthy. And so for this poor beggar named Lazarus to be at the bosom of a wealthy, wealthy individual means it's not simply about rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. That is simply not the right conclusion we can draw. Let's see what Abraham continues to say. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Son, child, what you request is impossible. There is a chasm. Friends, in this world, sinners and saved sinners, let's call Christians saved sinners and then sinners, unrepentant. We mingle and mix with one another from day to day. We can be in the same family, same workplace, schools, businesses. Our society doesn't separate along those lines. But we see of a place that's coming after where there is a great chasm. There's a great chasm. And on one side, there are those who are with God and there are those who are not. And that is a sober reminder of that reality because this present time, we live this world, we share this world together. And that is a great reminder of how important the gospel is, how important that message is. So then he comes with his second request in verse 27, and here it's not Lazarus who does the begging anymore. It's this rich man. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. I have five brothers. Send him to warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He wants Lazarus to kind of be like a, a ghost or an apparition coming to his family saying, you have to change your ways. Here you can see that he has realized that he needed to be warned. That he is rightly in the place where he is. He's not complaining, how did I end up here? He realizes he didn't heed the warning. Send Lazarus so his family can be warned. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That's another way of saying they have the book, the law, the Torah. They have the commandments. They have the writings of the Jewish people. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, 
Father Abraham. No. What's he saying? He's saying, I had that too. Don't you see, Father Abraham, I had the law. I had the prophets. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I have to tell you, sometimes I get tricked into thinking, is that weird? Is that a ghost? Not because I really, I'm not into that stuff, but a few nights ago, a few nights ago, AB, you know, you take your hearing aid out, so you're lucky, but Josh, <laughs> Josh and I, I know, it's always these roommate stories, Josh and I, we hear this banging at 4.35 in the morning, boom, 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 boom. And, you know, you hear sounds and you incorporate it into your dream. So initially, I'm just dreaming about someone knocking. And I'm thinking, that's annoying in my dream. And then I realize it's not a dream. Boom, 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 boom. You didn't hear it, did you? So loud. But imagine, imagine an apparition of a person appeared to you. Someone you thought was dead. You know, when this family visits the rich man, they'll be like, hey, who this dude lying in front of you? It's like, oh, that'd be Lazarus. Ignore him. I don't know what to do about him. Someone put him there. Forget about him. They would perhaps already know. And so imagine Lazarus appears to the family. Yo. Yo. Your brother. He now. Repent. It's going to get your attention. It's going to really shake you up. It's going to make you realize that the things you've heard are completely true. So I think that's a reasonable request. I think, fair enough. Send him. They will repent, surely. And Abraham says again, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. What an interesting thing to say. I really like apologetics. You know, I, I think I, I like it because it's personal for me because I want Christianity to be rational and logical. You know, if it's true, it should be self-evident. But the frustrating thing for me, as I, you know, listened to the debates and read the books, you know, um, Reason for God and all these other lots of good, good material out there, the thing that bothered me was there's so many people out here that aren't going to need logic and rational, reasoned, high-level thinking. That's not what's going to convince them. So this can't be everything. This can't be the thing that gets us to go, yeah, that's right, Jesus is Lord. It's really good when a well-known author writes a book that sort of handles that thing that you're going through. So... Uh, for some reason, all your preachers seem to quote John Piper all the time. Now, I haven't read a lot of his books, but there's one book that he wrote that I read recently called A Peculiar Glory. And that's the title for today, to honor um, the author's title of that book. Because that's 
the book that he wrote to address that very question that was in me. There's something about the scriptures that must be self-authenticating, self-proving, that rises beyond simply human developed ways of saying this A, B, C, D, E. Because the question we ask ourselves is, why speak like this? Why say that if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead? And here's the thing. As, as helpful as it is to hear the really good and well-sustained explanations for the case for Jesus, for his resurrection. If someone is hard-hearted to the word of God, then their hardened heart, their hardened and dead heart, it's hardened to even, even a miracle like a ghost or an apparition coming from the dead. That's what we're saying. And that's confronting to us. Because sometimes when we struggle with our faith, it is tempting for us to think, oh God, I just need a little bit more. I need a sign. Just show me something. Do something supernatural for me. And the Pharisees in Jesus' time, after seeing all these miracles, said something similar. They said, what sign will you give Jesus? What sign will you give to us to show us who you claim you are? Jesus says, I will not give you any sign except for the sign of Jonah, which again was preached at your church earlier this year, I believe. The sign of Jonah. Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. Section three, in one ear and out the other. Why wasn't the law and the prophets enough for this rich man? Same reason why for so many of us today, the gospel message just bounces right out, just hits and bounces. As we know from the parable of the soils, there's hard soil everywhere where the word just hits and is devoured away. It's gone. Because it's not simply the message but it's the work of God, his gracious act of taking someone and working upon them so that they will be receptive to his word. So Jesus rises from the dead, he's walking along and he sees two disciples and they're sad. They're sad and they're sorrowful and Jesus says, what's going on? What's up with you guys? And they say, are you the only guy that hasn't heard what's happened? And they tell Jesus about they're telling Jesus about Jesus. And Jesus says, you guys, don't you get it? And he opens the scripture to them. He explains that what took place is in line with the God of, who revealed himself throughout scripture. This is according to his plan. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't because the Romans did it. It wasn't because the Jewish leaders conspired to do it. It was the plan of God. And they break bread and at that moment their eyes are open and they realize and that's when Jesus 
just kind of teleports maybe, we don't know, just sort of leaves. And they look at each other and they say, were not our hearts burning? When was their heart burning? As Jesus took them through Scripture. Friends, whether we are Christian or not, we need God to continue to help us receive His Word that stokes our heart, that stokes those flames. So we don't just go away going, oh, that was an okay, I'll give that message a 4 out of 10 or a 6 out of 10. Or, or you read your devotion and go, oh, pretty cool devotion. Or, or you, read, you read a different passage of the Bible, oh, so many names, this is boring. But it stokes our hearts. That somehow what is simply words for some people becomes the living word for us. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4 says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We're in the final point now. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through. It has a way of breaking through a person's situation and says, oh my gosh, that's right. This explains why the world is like this. This explains my heart. This explains my need for God. Let me read one final verse this morning. And it's so fitting because you've been going through Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and a bit of 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See how that connects to this passage here. Moses and the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It is remarkable that we have a testimony of the words and the revelation and the life of the son that God spoke through. We have, we have this amazing scripture that points to Jesus, shows us Jesus, and shows us the fruit of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the life of mission and the early church. And so it would not be wrong for us to say today that Abraham might respond like this. They have Moses and the prophets, and the greatest and final revelation of God, his son Jesus. Let them listen to them. Let them hear them. So friends, this is what I want to say to you. Let's go back to that first question. Do you need to believe in the Bible to be saved? Strictly speaking, it is Christ who saves you. Hold on to him. Trust in his atoning work for your life. But the Bible is the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself so that it's not just that moment in history that people see something and the eyewitnesses are saved, but the eyewitnesses carry that message through. And generation after generation is witness after witness. You see, if God 
has to send a ghost or some other miracle, then ghosts and other miracles will become so common that they won't be miracles anymore. They just become common. Phenomena is phenomena because of its rarity. But we have a scripture that continues to remain throughout every passing age. Let me finish with this. It is common for us to think something worthy is limited in access. Okay, so concert, there's special VIP seats. Sporting ground, owner's box. Okay? There's something inherent in, about, in, in how we think where limitation, limit of access means it must be worth, have worth, and commonality means that maybe it's not treasure. And this is the remarkable thing about God's gift of Scripture. And this is something that isn't always the case. It took time, right? Before the Bible was handwritten and hand copied. And then the printing press came and now digital access. And we live in a time where the access to the Word of God, unparalleled, right? Especially in free and developed countries. But it's because of that common and ubiquitous access. It's just everywhere. Perhaps it makes us treasure it less. Perhaps we fail to see the treasure of God's word because it is so easily accessible. But it is not so. The gift of God is that his word goes out. They have the law. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the revelation of the life, death, resurrection, and words and fruit of Jesus Christ. So if you thought, you know, why, why is there a sermon on Sunday? It's not about hearing someone speak. It's about hearing God speak in his word so that we can continue to remain convinced that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray.